Welcome back to the book of 1 Corinthians, Church at its Worst. And I'm glad we did upbeat songs to begin with because this is not an upbeat passage. So turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to pick right back up where we left off. We're going to start in chapter 17. Just a quick recap as you're getting there. Paul goes to the city of Corinth and sometime in the early to mid 50s AD, like 54, 3, 4, 5, somewhere in there. We're not, not exactly sure. We know generally where he was because the book of Acts tells us about who was the Roman, the Roman proconsul at the time. And we know he served in these couple of years. So Paul was there for a year and a half. He's somewhere in that time, 63, uh, 53, 54, 55, somewhere in there. He leaves, he's there for 18 months, he goes back to Antioch, which is his head base, he's waiting, he's working on what he's going to do next. At some point, he writes him a letter, probably a couple years later, after he's left, just, you know, how's it going? We don't have that letter, we don't know what he wrote. We do know at some point, another year or so after that, they send him a letter back in response. We also don't have that letter. God did not preserve that. We don't know what they wrote to Paul. We just know it's been about three, maybe four years since he left. The church has been around, so it's been around for a couple years. It's not brand new, but three, four years, it's not that old either. And they ask Paul a series of questions. And we know that because most of 1 Corinthians, which is Paul's letter back to them, so it's actually a second letter to the church, but it's the first one we have, He keeps saying things like, now about this question you asked me, now about this issue you brought up, now about whether you're allowed to do these things. He keeps responding to things that they must have asked him. And so we're picking up in chapter 11 with yet another issue, something they've asked him or perhaps something he's heard about. There's no postal service back in this time, you know, the 50s AD. To send a letter, you send it with somebody. So we're told later, like three or four guys have come from the church to bring this letter and they've told him about things that are going on and they've answered some of his questions. He, he's heard things that are happening. He's read their questions. Now, before we start reading, I just want you to notice a pattern with the way Paul writes. Just look at the top of chapter 11 and verse two, where he starts dealing with this issues of whether you need to have your head covered. In verse two, he begins, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding on to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. So he starts out really positive. And then if you look at the end of that section in verse 16, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practices, nor do the churches of God. And he ends really strong. That's a common pattern for the way Paul talks. If you were to flip back to chapter 10, and go to, uh, we'll look at uh, verse 14. When he's going, now he's talking about whether you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. Therefore, dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves. You know, very conciliatory, very hey. How about this? Look at how he ends in verse 22. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than him? Paul has this common back and forth when he talks. Um, One of the folks on our staff, Becca, calls it the truth sandwich. You know, if you're somebody give somebody a big old glob of peanut butter to eat, it's better if you put some bread and spread some honey and then the peanut butter and then the jelly and some more bread. You want to sandwich what you're going to say to people. So you're going to say nice, positive things on either side and you're going to say the hard things in the middle. Paul apparently knew that. He's, he has very complimentary things to say as well as hard things. You remember back at the beginning, he starts out saying, I wish I could address you as a mature, but you're not. You're like babes. 
But then a little while later, he says, I'm not saying this to shame you. I'm saying this to, en- to encourage you like a father would encourage his children. This back and forth. I want you to listen to this passage we're about to read. Listen for the back and forth, the good and the bad, the positive and the negative, starting in chapter 11, verse 17, and going on to the end of the chapter, verse 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. So in Paul's normal pattern, back and forth, good and bad, positive and negative, in this section, there is no positive. There's nothing good. He doesn't commend them. He doesn't praise them. He doesn't even give them a crumb about, hey, okay, I I get it, you're doing this, or hey, I just want you to know how much I care about you. Like from beginning to end, he has nothing good to say. That's how he starts this. I have nothing good to say to you. And he keeps his word throughout this passage. He says, nothing good. Now, now let me explain to you a little of what's going on in Paul's world, why he's writing this. In the world Paul lives in, the Bible's in, this first century in the Roman Empire, you don't have a middle class. You know, in America, in our world, you have this wide economic stratum, and, and people worry about things like income inequality, and you have folks all across the socioeconomic strata in America. That's not true in the city of Corinth. It's not true in the Roman Empire. You have a few people, maybe three to five percent of the population, who are fabulously wealthy, and everybody else is dirt poor. And I mean dirt poor as in they have enough money to eat. They own two sets of clothes at most. That's it. That's what life is like in this time. The vast majority, 95 plus percent of people, are what we would consider to be incredibly impoverished. Now, they're not starving to death. They are eating. They're feeding their families. But that's it. This Three to five percent of people, they have all the wealth, 
They have all the property. They own homes and lots of them. They own farms and they own cattle and they own businesses. They have all the wealth and everybody else you work effectively as kind of like slave labor for somebody. I mean, maybe you literally are a slave or maybe you're just what we would consider like an indentured servant. You don't own a place to live. You have a room that you and your family live in. It would be like public housing for us. Maybe the government provides for it. Maybe your employer provides for it. But you don't have your own home and you just barely have enough for yourself. The church mirrored society. That's what the church looked like. It would have a few fabulously wealthy people in it and everybody else is just gonna be subsistence level. They're just gonna be getting along. And Paul's talking about that when the church comes together and celebrates communion, the same thing that we do. They appear at this point, they're probably meeting weekly and they're meeting in one of these rich people's homes. Because again, nobody else has a home You have a room, and you certainly don't have permission to have other people come to a meeting. There are no churches. There's no church buildings. They're meeting in someone's home, and you'll read that in the Bible sometime. Paul will say, greet so-and-so and and the church that meets in her home. That means she's wealthy. She's a a patron, so to speak. The church is gathering for their service in her house. Some of these, you know, let's make up a number to make it easy. Let's say there's 100 families in the church in Corinth, Okay. Two, three, four of them are going to be fabulously wealthy. And the other 95, 96, 97, something like that percent of people are just barely going to get along. And the church is going to gather in one of the homes, and again, they probably owned many, in one of the homes of these really rich people. Or if the church is super large, they may be breaking up. Part of it may be meeting in this guy's house. Part of it may be meeting here. Part of it may be meeting there. And they had a service kind of like what we did. Or if you've ever been to a Catholic church or an Orthodox church, very much like that. They sang songs like we do. There was some sort of message, although they weren't nearly as long-winded as I was. I apologize. They, They did all these same things. They even had announcements that they talked about. And they celebrated Communion, for them, the center of the service, the most important thing, the part of the service that everything else wrapped around, the thing you never wanted to miss was communion. That's true for the first several hundred years in the church. The thing that everybody is there for, the, 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 the main point of any service is communion. That's why they're there. Now that's not true for us again today. I think probably in our our churches, certainly our evangelical Protestant churches, it's the message or the music that people would say is the center. If you missed communion, that would probably be a bummer. But for them, that was the absolute main center. That was worship. Singing wasn't the main part of worship. The main part of worship was when they ate this bread and this wine together. And whosoever house they were in, they were the host and they would supply the bread and the wine. And it's not like we do. They would think we're pretty chintzy that we give you this little tiny cracker and this little itty bitty cup. They would give you a loaf. Now it's not like a baguette. I mean, it's just about, it's it's like a dinner roll. Um, And they'd give you a, a cup of wine and the host would have to provide that. So for all these families who's ever meeting in the home, the host would provide that for communion. Because nobody else could. There's no potlucks in the ancient world. People are just barely getting by. 
You, you have enough to feed yourself and your kids, and that's it. When these people gave money, when Paul, and it'll be later in the, the, the letter, when Paul says to them about setting aside money for other things, that could very well mean missing a meal. That's how they often paid for things. When we worked in Wycliffe Bible Translators, you know, we're working in these very, very poor countries. So we were in West Africa. One of the places we were was a country called Mali. It was like the fourth poorest place on earth when we were there. Um, imagine what it costs to buy a Bible. We're translating the Bible and then we're selling it to people. I mean, what did this Bible cost? 20, 30 bucks? Nobody can afford that. These are people who make a couple dollars a day at most. We priced Bibles at the cost of a meal, which is about 20 or 25 cents for them. So to buy a Bible, it did cost them. They had two meals a day, just like the folks in Paul's world did. And it cost them one of those two meals. It cost them 20 or 25 cents to buy a Bible. We didn't just want to give them away that they had no value. And obviously, we didn't want to charge what it cost us to print them. Nobody could afford them. That's true of these people. So they're going to somebody's home for their church service. (laughs) And it looks like these couples, rich families, they're getting together before the service to have a meal together. So, you know, church is seven to eight, but they're getting together at six and they're having dinner together, which, hey, people do that all the time. And they're probably eating the dinner rolls You know, they're drinking the wine. Maybe they have a little too much to drink. Maybe they they overeat a bit. When the church comes together, there's not enough. There's not enough for everybody. You know, they're having to break the rolls up and pass them out. Or they're just having to put a little wine in the people's cups because they've eaten it. They've drunk whatever it was that was gonna be used for the common church service. And do you notice How scathing Paul is about this. I mean, what are these people doing wrong? They're being selfish, right? I mean, they know that we ought to save this stuff for the church service, but ah, you know, they're they're eating some of it ahead of time. We we ought to wait and you know all eat together, but ah, they're having some friends over a little early. Like these are not what you think of as the big sins. They're being selfish. They're not not thinking about their brothers and sisters. They're just thinking about themselves and their own friends and their own stomach. They're, They're being selfish. And Paul rips them up and down. There is, again, it's the only thing he's written where there's not even a hint of their doing anything right. He starts by saying, I have nothing good to say to you about this. Your meetings, your services, they do more harm than good. Paul says, I wish you weren't having church services because what you're doing is so bad. And then he makes this really cryptic statement in 18 and 19. I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Well, sure, that's what the whole letter's been about. I mean, I know, you know, for us, it's been months, but this whole letter is about divisions in the church. That's one of the issues Paul has dealt with over and over and over again. We've talked about it. Paul keeps calling them to unity and not to thinking alike, but to all agreeing, look, Jesus is Lord. You're all Christians because you all say Jesus is Lord. That's your unity. I hear that there are divisions among you and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. 
Like, that's a really weird thing for a guy to say who has been harping on the need for unity this whole time. And some commentators think like he's being literal. He's just throwing his hands up in the air and saying, well, there's always gonna be divisions at a church, right? You're never actually gonna get it all together because some people are gonna do it right and some people are gonna do it wrong. A lot of commentators think he's being sarcastic. Like he's just being rude to them. He's been telling them this whole time, there should be no divisions in your church. And now he's like, oh, but of course. I mean, you must have divisions, right? How would anyone know whether you're doing the right thing? Paul's such a good writer. I suspect it's both. Like I suspect he's being deliberately ambiguous when he writes this to the people. It's like, there must be divisions. Well, yeah, sure. But didn't he just, like what? And then he just keeps on going. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. When you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person's hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in? Okay, now remember, only a few people in this church actually have a home. Like when he says that, he's talking to the rich in the church. He's talking to the hosts, the people who are hosting the church. And he's saying to them, Why are you coming over to the church service and eating the food for the church? You have food. Most of your brothers and sisters don't. You have a home. Most of your brothers and sisters don't. And then he gives us this communion formula. I read it to you every week. He tells us what Jesus did. Because think about what's happening to Jesus when he says this. 12 hours after he says these words, he will be hanging on a cross. He will be dying. He is half a day away from being dead. He is hours away from being arrested, having the snot beat out of him, scourged. That means they take a whip where they've embedded metal in it and they just rip the skin off your back and then put up on a cross and crucified. He is hours away from that happening. What is he doing? He is giving food to people. He's not taking the bread Jesus took the bread, broke it, and ate it all, saying, wow, I'm really gonna need my strength. You don't know the kind of day I'm about to have. He's taking it, and he's giving it away. He is being the very picture of unselfishness. And of course, that picture is gonna go forward over the next 12 hours. He's gonna die. He's not just gonna give away food. He's gonna give away his life. Paul says, you're selfish. You're not thinking about your brothers and sisters. You're just thinking about yourself. You're thinking about, oh yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to get together. Oh sure, let's let's have a meal. Let's have something to eat. You know, before everybody comes in and it gets really hard to talk and be together, we'll have our own little communion meal here. Paul says, you are just being selfish. You are meeting to celebrate Jesus' unselfishness. You are getting together. The central part of your service is to remember, as Jesus said, this is my body, do this and remember. This is my blood, do this and remember. The central part of your service is remembering Jesus' sacrifice to you. And you, you are doing exactly the opposite. Paul says, he is scathing. And that, my friends, that's the good part of what he has to say because it gets worse. He goes on in 27, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now we've heard that before. Flip back, just probably it's just one page in your Bible. Flip back to chapter 10, verse 16. 
Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Okay, for us, that was two months ago we read that. But for them, it's only two minutes ago. They're just, this letter is just being read out loud to the church. Paul has just talked about the body and the blood of Christ. And he said, that's us. We share in that. That this meal that we take, when, when you take that piece of bread that represents Christ's body, we're all eating from that same, in our case, you know, pizza matzah that we broke up into pieces. You're, we're one loaf, Paul says. We're all supposed to be together. We're remembering what Jesus has done for us. And Paul says, and you are not thinking about that at all. You are thinking about yourself. Everyone, he says in verse 28, ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Remember, the body of Christ, that's us. Every time we come down and we take this meal, it's not just about us. It's not just about me saying, oh yes, I've sinned. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. It's not just this. Remember, we've talked about these, these three relationships, right? Up, us, and God. In, us, and the community of believers. And then out, us, and the world. Communion is not just up and us, and God. It's not just up. It's also in, Paul says. You, you are supposed to be paying attention. You're supposed to be thinking about your relationship to the others in the church. And then this is what he says in verse 30. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Paul says, this is why some of you have died. Can you imagine if you came to me and said, oh, Jeff, you know, I'm, I've just been so tired lately. I'm getting sick easily. I, I wonder if God's trying to tell me something. And I said, yeah, he's trying to tell you you're selfish and you're gonna die if you, quote, don't stop it. This is the harshest that Paul has ever been in this entire book. And notice in verse 30, many among you, Right? He's using this issue of, of who's ever hosting the church is actually eating all the food ahead of time, inviting a few of their friends over. He's using that as an example, but that's not the only thing that's going on, he said. It's not like, oh, the rich are bad and everybody else is fine. He says, you're all doing this in different ways. You're all just thinking about yourself. That is why you're weak. That is why you're sick. That is why some of you are dead. Now think I mean, and again, this is so much easier for me, right? Because I've had time to do this. Think back to everything we have talked about this. Think about all the problems that Paul has listed in this church. Rampant infighting. I mean, people just at each other's throats over all sorts of stuff. Clicks and, and factions and politics. Everybody fighting with each other. He has talked about incest. He's talked about adultery. He's talked about people in the church suing each other. He's talked about people getting all up in a knot over these various theological issues. For them, food sacrificed to idols. That Paul says, look, that's not the gospel. You're welcome to think what you want about that. Stop abusing each other about it. Think about everything that Paul has talked about so far in this letter. This 
selfishness, not caring about your brothers and sisters. This is the one that Paul says, God has judged some of you for that and he has killed you. Some in your church have died because of their selfishness. Nobody died for their adultery, incest, infighting, theological up and downs. Paul just said, stop those things. This one, he says, people have died over. Brothers and sisters, this passage scares me. And it should scare you. You know, I go down through Paul's letter, right? Infighting, clicks, everything else, nope, I'm not doing that, right? Adultery, incest, nope, I'm not doing that. Suing other believers, nope, I'm not doing that. Making mountains out of molehills about secondary issues, nope, I'm not doing that. Selfish. Being selfish. Thinking about yourself, your own desires, your own wants, your own stomach, rather than about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Is there anyone in this room who is not guilty of that. I mean, I I am firmly convinced if you strip away everything else about our hearts, in the center, there is a red hot core of selfishness. I want what I want. And Paul says, do you know how angry that makes the Lord? That makes God angry enough to strike some of you dead. He's not said that about anything else in this book. And in my opinion, the other stuff in this book is way worse. Like if, you, if I was looking at several of you, right, and one of you is committing adultery and suing people, and the other one is selfish, I know which one I would be worried about more. Not Paul. Paul says, God, God is concerned about the selfishness. God is concerned about that you are thinking of yourself. You are not discerning the body of Christ. You're not aware of your brothers and sisters. You're not thinking about how you interact with them, whether you care about them, whether you're putting their needs and everything else first. This passage scares me. Because remember what Jesus told us near the end of his life. How are people gonna know that we are his disciples? What are they gonna look at and say, oh, they follow Jesus? Because it's not that we all agree on things. He doesn't say, they'll look at you and see that you all agree, and so you're my disciples. It's not that we all vote the same. It's not that we all believe the same thing. It's not even that we all agree on theology. They will look at you and say, oh wow, they have all their theological ducks in the row. They must be followers of Jesus. Christ says that people will look at us and say, wow, like those people love each other. They must follow Jesus. All those people, black and white, Republican and Democrat, maskers and anti-vaxxers, they don't agree, but they love each other. They care about each other. They think about each other. They're they're putting one another's needs in front of their own. They may totally disagree on who should be elected mayor in the next election. But wow, are they there for one another? Wow, do they love each other? Jesus says that's how the world, remember, up, in, out. That's how the world is going to look back at our community and be astounded and realize that Jesus 
must be at the center of this. It's that we love each other. Remember that word love. It's agape. It means unselfish devotion. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It doesn't even mean that we like each other. It means we're devoted to one another. Paul, Paul says, you're not doing that. The Corinthians, you, you look nothing like that. And it makes God angry. You need to stop. You need to think. You need to examine yourself. So brothers and sisters, that's what we're going to do. Because we're going to end with communion as we always do. I'm going to read this passage to you again. But now you know the context. Now you know what Paul is talking about. Paul isn't laying out for them an ordinance. Hey, when you celebrate communion, do it this way. He's scolding them. He is scathing in his denunciation of their selfishness. And he says, hey, you need to examine yourself. Not just your own sin and your own relationship with God, but your relationship with the body, with Jesus' other followers. Are you being Are you caring about them? Are you putting their needs in front of your own? Are you concerned about what's going on with your brothers and sisters, Paul says? Because if you're not, Paul strongly suggests you not take this meal. Because this stands for Jesus giving up his very life for us. I mean, talk about putting someone else's needs before your own. Jesus looks at me And says, there's Jeff's sin, and there's my life. And Jesus says, I'll take care of Jeff's sin, even though it costs me my life. Paul says, that's what the Lord expects of us. That we act like our Lord. That when we do this, when we remember what he's done for us, that we commit ourselves to acting that way as well. Now, I can't tell you what that looks like in your life because we'll talk about this again next week because, boy, Paul is just going to run with this idea for a little while. We're going to talk next week. We're going to redo that idea of community as as one of the marks of discipleship. That We all have different gifts. We all have different places. God calls us to all sorts of different things. I can't say to you, oh, here's how you need to love people, right? These folks, he uses one example. Hey, you guys, you guys who are hosting the service, Stop eating all the food ahead of time. That's their example. I don't know what your example is. I mean, I know what mine are. Like I said, I have not enjoyed this passage because it tells me some things about myself I don't want to hear. I'm going to pray. I've been praying that God will speak to each of us if we're doing this. If we're coming down and we're happily taking the body and the blood of Christ and being so glad that Jesus has saved us and not paying any attention to his body and blood around us. Look around. We are the body of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul has told us. Everyone needs to examine themselves, he says. When you don't discern the body, when you don't realize you're part of the body, when you pay no attention to what's going on in the body, Paul says, you you eat that loaf, you, you drink that wine, yeah, you're not drinking remembrance of what Jesus has done. You're doing just the opposite. You are eating and drinking judgment on yourself because you are acting nothing like him. So 
I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask God to, to speak to us, to show us these things. If he shows anything to you, and again, if he doesn't, great, blessings on you. This isn't about guilt. It's about obedience and repentance. If he shows you something, if something comes to mind like, oh yeah, you're right, I'm not doing that, then repent. Then say to the Lord, I'm sorry, you're right. I've done that. I, I, I want to change. Help me not do that again. And then Come take the body and the blood. And then know that there's no condemnation. That Jesus doesn't scowl at us when we say to him, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't do that. You're right. He's delighted. He already knows. I mean, it's not like you're telling, anything, telling him anything he doesn't know. It's for us. So I'm gonna pray for us. And then when I finish praying, just get up, go to one of the three stations. Remember, there's gluten-free here on the right side of this middle station if you need it. Again, pro tip, middle station is the one that fills up first. So head to the sides. So let's pray. Uh, Lord, um, I know I'm supposed to say thank you at this point, but I haven't liked this passage. This hits close to home. It's easy for me to say, oh no, I'm not doing any of those other things Paul talks about. I'm not causing clicks and and I'm not doing any of these things. But wow, I I can't say this. I can't say that about this. I can't say that I'm not selfish. I can't say that I, I don't put my needs above my brother's and sister's needs. I do. I know I do. I can think of examples today where I have done that. Lord, forgive us. I'm sorry that 2,000 years after Paul wrote these words, it's still true of us. We're still doing this. We're still living for our own stomachs. We are still most concerned about ourselves. And then we come down and we remember what you did for us. We just aren't anything like you. Lord, forgive us. I pray for my brothers and sisters now. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will speak to us I have had the the, the advantage of a week or more in this passage. Everyone else, we're just hearing it right now. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to them, that you would speak to my brothers and sisters. If there are ways we are doing this, then please tell us. We don't want to. We don't want to be judged by you, and we don't want to disappoint you. I pray for our church, Lord, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Tell us if there's ways that we are not paying attention to our brothers and sisters, that that we are not doing what you have called us to do because I know from your word you've called us all to do different things. Jesus, be gracious to us. You know what scripture says. You wrote it. You know we're dust. Lord, be merciful to us. Speak to us. Show us. Show us ways that, that we are acting just like what Paul says so that we can repent so that we can say we are sorry, we do not want to be those people. And Lord, I I pray that that you will remind us, just as Paul says, that there is no condemnation. You don't hold our sin against us. Be gracious to us, Jesus. Speak to us as we take the bread, as we take the cup. Speak to us. Let, Let us know, where do you want us to change? Remind us of your great love for us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. We pray everything in your name. You are our God. Amen.